0: Welcome to episode five of Civil War Breakfast Club. I'm your co-host Mary, and joining me is my co-host Darren.
1: Hello, Mary. How are you? I'm
0: good. How are you?
1: How's everything going? Have a good weekend.
0: Awesome. I did. Thank you. Very good.
1: Our very Facebook good Live
0: went very well on Sunday.
1: Facebook Live was a lot of fun. Anybody yep. who would participate in that, we really appreciate. It was a good topic. We had some mm-hmm. good fun with the football. We did. Watched some halfway decent football over the weekend. And that was pretty cool. But yeah. It's go good Pats. to um, go, Pats. I know. Definitely giving your Packers one, right? Yeah, Gosh. they did. Yeah, they did. Pats and Pack won. Yep. Life cannot be bad when both the Patriots and the Packers win. Exactly.
0: And we are both obviously drinking beer tonight. So what are you drinking, Darren? Shocker.
1: I am drinking, <laughs> once again, Shipyard Smash Pumpkin that I had the other day on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And now drinking it out of our brand new shiny silverware breakfast club mugs oh god can you believe we got mugs (laughs)
0: this is courtesy of darren it just arrived today so pretty awesome
1: now it's official now it's officially a podcast because we got mugs
0: yeah we've got merch Um, yeah definitely I am drinking Moonlight on Chrome session IPA. Call. Team
1: OO. Team OO. Absolutely. I'm going to feel we'll be talking about OO Howard at some point tonight. I
0: think he might come up in this episode or our next episode as well.
1: I think he's going to be a guest star tonight. Tonight is a very exciting podcast. You know why?
0: Because we are doing this in two parts. This is a
1: first two parter, first double header podcast that we are going to attempt here at the Cape Cod Baseball. Cape Cod Civil War baby, <laughs> Breakfast Club <laughs> this is why I'm working too much I, I got a, a Cape Cod Breakfast Club World Headquarters I am fucked that up off. God anyway <sighs> cut take two but anyway <laughs> this is our first two-parter we are going to discuss the maryland campaign and then next week we're going to discuss antietam so maryland 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 dear Mar- mother burst the tyrant chain maryland my maryland you know what's the only state song that talks about secession that's the whole point of it? 1861 maryland my, maryland 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 virginia shall not call in vain Maryland, Maryland. It's sung out to that Christmas tree song.
0: I knew that, but I didn't know the lyric. It
1: refers to bursting the tyrant's chain. You know who the tyrant is? Lincoln, right? Lincoln. We got it. It Written in yeah. 1861, the state song of Baltimore, Maryland. Mm-hmm. Well, Maryland, think Baltimore. So we're going to talk. We're going to basically start where we kind of left off two weeks ago or three weeks ago when we finished with Manassas.
0: Yeah. Two, so
1: let's two go into our. Ago. Three weeks ago, yeah. cool, losing time. So let's go into our way back machine yeah. and talk about where we left off after Manassas. John Pope had just got his ass kicked, set it right this time. He got. <laughs> By Lee and Longstreet, and he basically was forced to retreat back to Washington D.C. It really set the stage for the Maryland campaign because now Lee felt emboldened to keep on going, but it really caused a lot of issues within the Northern Army, really right from the beginning. And we kind of let's of where we kind of left off. But you're talking about the two-week-long campaign, the Maryland campaign. You're talking about South Mountain, which we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. You talk about Harper's Ferry, which we'll talk about, and that leads into into Antietam, which we will tease yeah. and talk about next week. So what do we learn about Pope what do we learn about the status of the of the Northern Army? Because it wasn't the Army of the Potomac in full yet at that uh at that point.
0: It's the army of Virginia that mm-hmm. Pope was fighting with at second Manassas. Right. And it was a complete route for the Union Army. Lincoln is basically in a very tough spot right now because 1862 is a congressional election year. Morale so bad in the Army. If he keeps Pope in, he's going to have a mutiny on his hands. So he's mm. got a very tough decision to make. So he knows he wants
1: Pope out. He also knows he's got a cabinet that wants no part of George McClellan. Yep. None. These are the tough situations. So let's just look at gold George McClellan here for a second and go back to him once again, dissect and analyze George McClellan. Yep. So basically he is put in the doghouse after they finish the peninsula in the seven days, and he is stewing because he's sitting back in DC that he's not in charge. He writes his letter to his wife, basically saying that he kind of hopes he loses. He also writes a letter after Manassas, basically like saying, Abraham Lincoln stating, let Pope get out of this scrape. Yeah. Which pissed which pissed Lincoln off. And that causes all kinds of problems. And what ultimately happens is you got McClellan, who is really the only real choice at the time to take over. Yeah. Meanwhile, this is the McClellan who is saying things like, Lincoln is an idiot. He's the original gorilla. He's a well-meaning baboon.
0: He's all got the, names oh. for all his cabinet members, like you know, Name, Sewards and, a mom. Pop Seward's a puppy, and Wells is like a garrulous old woman. He hated everybody. This this guy's like a golden yeah. girl. I mean, he, he doesn't like anybody.
1: He hates Stanton. He hates Halleck. He even hates Gideon Wells. Who the hell hates yeah, Gideon Wells? I
0: know. Gideon Wells you know, is awesome.
1: He doesn't like the Secretary of War. He, doesn't, he hates the General-in-Chief, hates the head of the Navy. And I think the biggest issue is when you look at McClellan, you see a pattern with him. He just doesn't like authority to a point where he's going to run for president a couple of years later because he doesn't like – that's his whole thing. He doesn't like authority. So basically, you've got an army whose morale completely sucks. You've got a cabinet that hates McClellan. You've got a president who can't trust Pope anymore. He knows he has to make a tough decision. Meanwhile, Lee is sitting back with his Dr. Evil look back in his headquarters, thinking, this is my opportunity perhaps to do something. Does he have you a know? cat? He's got one million soldiers ready Does to Does he go. have
0: one of those ugly cats?
1: He's got one of his ugly cats. And don't make fun of Butler here. I know that's where you're going No,
0: I'm not this. making fun of Butler. I'm talking about those hairless cats. <laughs> Mr. Bigglesworth was hairless.
1: <laughs> Mr. Bigglesworth. <Yeah. laughs> Lee and Mr. Bigglesworth are sitting around... Uh, at the campfire outside (laughs) in maryland claiming the next move butler's cute my father's a good cat. He's my cat. He's a he's the uh, floof commander, brigade commander. <laughs> Floofy
0: brigade commander. Floofy, that's what we
1: ever call him. All right. So, you know, so basically everything goes bad at Second Manassas, everything falls apart. Halleck is the one who reaches out to McClellan first. He goes behind mm-hmm. Lincoln's back and says, Hey, listen, maybe you might want to come back. I don't know, which is kind of strange because they weren't really fans of each other anyway. Mm-hmm. McClellan says, Well, maybe I'll do it, but I'm going to need some things. I don't really know. But I think when you look at the overall status of that it's a complete disarray. You got pissed off troops. You got all kinds of stuff, too. You have got lack of food. You got lack of supplies. Quartermaster. McClellan had no idea what the damn quartermaster I mean, uh, Pope had no idea what the quartermaster was. You had all kinds of supply line problems. So that brings us to that cabinet meeting mm. on September 2nd, 1862. Yeah. when when they decide, Stanton primarily, that they want to permanently get rid of George McClellan. He's being a pain in the ass. He's just lingering around. He's sticking around, and, and they want to get rid of him. Mm-hmm. So they sit down, and Lincoln, not only does he not want to get rid of McClellan, he says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to keep McClellan. We're going to put him in charge of the defenses of Washington. And Stanton, he probably dropped his monocle. He was probably so mad because he, wa- he was paying pissed you don't want to piss off stanton you don't want to piss him off right so he he gets completely irate but lincoln gets his way he puts him in charge of the defenses in in washington dc
0: yeah and lincoln does make a good argument he says to stanton we have to use the tools we have he does and that to to lincoln that was all they had
1: they had nothing they really didn't have anything
0: but lincoln's also doing it because he knows that mcclellan Can raise the spirits of the army. Yeah, and that's
1: gonna that'll be coming. So he knows. Okay, let's get this guy back in. Let's see what happens. But then what happens is Lee ends up turning their hand because on nine four, just two days later, he begins his invasion of Maryland. Yeah. So now Lincoln is like, well, shit. Now I need a field commander. I guess we got to go to Mac, right? And that's what happens. So McClellan, after Robert E. Lee decides to march in Maryland, this is causing this is causing a crisis now because now Lincoln has he has no choice but to bring McClellan back as field commander, okay? It was offered to Burnside first, in full disclosure. Burnside said, not this, probably touched his nose and said, not this, okay? <laughs> and he actually suggested they hire McClellan because of the morale for the Army.
0: That'll come back so, to bite Burnside.
1: It, it certainly will, just a few weeks later. So on 9-5, just one days later, whole bands back together again. Mac is back, so he's in charge of the Army. And his first thing to do is help get the army together. So right off the bat, you've got, you've got Lee invading Maryland. And you've got a really bad military atmosphere. You've got a real bad political atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So you've got everybody hating each other. Everybody. You've got the politicians hating the army, army hating the politicians. The only people who are probably happy with it is going to be some of the soldiers. Because that's one thing McClellan does do right is he comes back and he helps restructure again and fix Popesmiths. Uh, yep. mass.
0: And that's what Lincoln saw in him. And Lincoln at the time was still willing, I think, to give him a chance. Lincoln said that, again, we got to use the tools we have. But he also said, if he, meaning McClellan can't fight himself, he excels in making others ready to fight. So he's basically seeing as having to build this army, of the Potomac, from the ground up, because from that, like the army Potomac gets made out of the army of Virginia too. those... Corps that were with the Army of Virginia to get put into well, the Army of the Potomac.
1: Well, we'll talk about the Army because now you have people have this assumption that when Mac takes over again, he's taking over some powerhouse. Like now he's back. It really it was really three armies. Mm-hmm. You had the Army of the Potomac, which was basically the second, fourth, fifth, and sixth corps. Right, You had the former Army of Virginia, which was the first on the 12th Corps. Mm -hmm. And then you had that ninth expeditionary North Carolina thing that Burnside had, which is part of the ninth Corps. So you really had all different, completely different armies, completely different goals. But then they also, right as this campaign's going, they're short on guys. They end up bringing in about 19,000 raw recruits that they bring right into the army. Now, these guys join the army with zero training. They don't go to camp. They don't go anywhere. They can put right into the field. The beginning of the Maryland campaign starts with 84,000 soldiers. That's what they're going to. the Union Army is going to have, this culmination of these three real armies, or really two and a half armies, of which, let's see, let's see your math skills here. Take out 18,000 people. You're talking about what, about 60, 60,000 field-ready troops? right sixty-six thousand. sure mary mcclellan math (laughs) right so you're looking at the (laughs) you're looking at an army which has very bad morale led by a president and a cabinet who don't get along now Mm -hmm. and now you have these three armies these conglomeration of armies all put together to basically try and cobble together something in the midst of a crisis with Lee invading maryland right Yeah. So, how do you think that's going to turn out?
0: Obviously, the morale is going to go up because McClellan's back, but it's McClellan. And Lee's in Maryland and there's congressional elections. It's got the word clusterfuck written all over it. <laughs>
1: that's sort of that's what I was gonna do. Yeah. That's what I was gonna say. But but you think about you you mentioned you mentioned just the status of it. So Army of the Potomac has basically two wings in reserve and right mm. wing's arm is led by your hero and mine, Ambrose Burnside. Ooh. Who is a friend of Mac.
0: Yeah, yeah. Were he and Mac roommates at
1: They referred to themselves as Mac and Burn.
0: Yep. Oh, that's sounds, gonna sounds come sounds, back
1: to... sounds like a bad Pickett's buffet it, menu item, right there. It does
0: there. actually, or you know? I don't know, some kind of disease. You
1: no, know? but just two weeks later, they won't be speaking to each other again. Yep. That's how the whole thing's gonna go. There will be a bridge between them. A bridge over troubled waters. Yep. The song stuck in my head now. So, Army Command. Okay, so we mentioned eighty-four thousand people in this new hybrid McClellan Army of the Potomac. So we'll take a look at the corps he had. First Corps, led by Joe Hooker. Yes. Was not a big fan of his, but he could fight. He was an offensive guy, just to keep things a little bit on the Gettysburgish side. Some of the guys under him, he had George Meade, who was a brigade commander. He also had Abner Doubleday. So you can see the formation of what will become later. Yeah. Okay. Second Corps is led by Edwin Sumner. He will have Israel Richardson with him, who in his division, who will also have John, who also have Caldwell from Gettysburg, Thomas Marr and John Rudderbrook. So you can start, to see, start to see these familiar names. again get to this 1862. Second Division led by John Sedgwick, who is led by. Under him would be Oliver Otis Howard. Oliver Otis Howard. Yeah. Crescent Moon himself. The Crescent yep. Moon and beer team, can himself. Team OO. <laughs> team OO will be the second in command under John Sedgwick. No no one knows if any elephants were hurt in the filming of this movie.
0: <laughs> oh, oh.
1: Too soon. Too soon. <laughs> too soon. Uh, third Division by William French. We'll hear about later on. And then it goes right to the Fifth Corps with former pariah Fitz John Porter. Yep who at the time was facing a court-martial for what he did at second
0: manassas yep and under him is george morrell george, george Sykes, morrell. and potty yep. mouth of the army of the potomac andrew and andrew hum- humphrey. humphrey
1: you know who was a brigade commander under morrell was james barnes oh yeah how's that for trivia huh yeah
0: wow a little
1: trivia here on a tuesday night nice. oh i'm sorry a saturday morning you know <laughs> We're drinking in a bar. Boy, it's really dark on a Saturday morning here. Isn't it? It's pitch black out here. Sixth Corps led by William Franklin, who we'll hear mm-hmm. about when we talk a little bit later on about South Mountain.
0: Yep, and he's got uh, Slocum under him. He's
1: got he's got Slocum if you got him. Okay. Baldy Smith. He's got Baldy Smith.
0: Both of them are eventually um, going to go to the Western Theater.
1: You know who was a Brigade General under Baldy Smith in this Corps, in this division? Winfield Scott Hancock.
0: Oh, okay.
1: He will take over just a jump ahead until next week. He will take over for Israel Richardson once he gets hurt at the Sunken Road. Mm-hmm. So must have been really soaked that day at the Sunken Road for him to take <laughs> over there. Been, yeah. And we'll tell that cool story about him next week. Romain Ayers was also part of the artillery, believe it or not, of the Sixth Corps. Ninth Corps led by... Jesse Reno, who would have a tough, tough battle at South Mountain. We'll talk about that. Ambrose Burnside will eventually take over with his portion of those North Carolina Expeditionaries that we talked about. Finally, finally the 12th Corps with Joseph Marshall, who would also fall to Alpheus Williams. He also had Sam Wiley Crawford and George Sears Green in his Corps as well. So you look at the makeup of this army. So you've got a strong set of generals. You've got a strong set of colonels. You've got a really good, on paper, quasi-all-star team. But again, when you look in deeper at these armies, none of these guys gone along. No. There was too many moving pieces with this.
0: Yeah. Well, the later superstars are lower down at this point, right? Like Meade is commanding a division at this point.
1: Not to mention your moon boy.
0: Yep. o is commanding a division. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's like a lot of future superstars here.
1: And there were Manassas too. Second like Manassas, actually. Yep. Yeah, they All were. All these yep. same guys. You know, yep. Confederacy was, was set up a little bit different than we come to know before. Yep. Basically, you had, you had Stonewall Jackson, then you had... James Longstreet. So, looking at the people he had under him, you had Richard Ewell commanding one part of it. You had D.H. Hill. Obviously, you had Jeb Stewart in the cavalry and Pendleton in the artillery. Then, over to Longstreet, you had Lafayette McClaws, Richard Anderson, David Jones, John Bell Hood. Mm-hmm. John Walker, who we will hear about later on, and, a lot, and just basically a lot of different guys. But when you look at actually in Robert e. Lee's army, though, he was basically having a lot of the same issues that, that the Northern Army had as far yep. as organization skills. You know, when he was going through Maryland, he had a gigantic issue with, with people walking on him. The biggest issue that they ran into by far in his army was people leaving the army. And so you, you look at some of the attrition rates that that they had as well certainly something to keep an eye on as you go forward with this as well but we got to give got to give a little bit of credit to to mcclellan though unfortunately with some of this stuff because he he really kind of did some good things
0: he was good at organizing he just he had this thing with first of all not wanting to fail which we've discussed about in previous episodes you know it's very different from grant and sherman that had experienced failures in their life and they just kinda of went for it. The other thing too to remember with McClellan is he is a Democrat. He he just wants peace. So that's something too to consider with him as to why he's not really that aggressive. But well, look at look
1: what he does look what he does though, in all seriousness, he, he reorganizes the artillery. Yep. He puts Henry Hunt in charge of the artillery. Mm-hmm. So basically pretty smart decision. He basically puts him in charge of that, gives him tactical authority, which will come back and have an issue with with. Um... Gettysburg, a couple of years, another so a year later with with Hancock, but he basically refits the entire thing. Each corps is going to have four batteries attached, three regulars and one, or three volunteers and one regular on paper anyway. So by the t- time you get to Antietam, you know he's got 320 or so organized guns to ready to go with this. But the problem was they had the better firepower and they had the better guns, but they didn't have the best guys. Like confederates like we talked about the sunken road a few minutes ago when you talk about that again they only had one federal battery that was really working the confederates had a whole bunch of better weaponry that they could Mm -hmm. use and so it was but he did a good job but another thing he really did well you know we talked before about about the issue with the supply trains leaving Manassas and, and as far as the guys didn't have any food they didn't have any forage for the horses you know he brought in a guy named Rufus Engels who made him the chief quartermaster he was so good in that position he stayed chief quartermaster right through Appomattox wow. he kept the job the whole war he basically made sure these guys were fed they uh make sure they had enemies and more importantly and this is a big thing that doesn't really get publicized because he really focused on making sure these guys were fed they didn't have to pillage and forage maryland because maryland at the time like that song that we sang a little bit earlier and we're going to hear you sing here in a few minutes i assume
0: no people love hearing you
1: sing oh you should hear mary sing
0: no people do not need to hear me sing
1: (laughs) it's quite a thing but, but but regardless he keeps them from from going through and really pissing off the locals in Maryland to help keep, basically keep them in the union too because if you start going through there and ripping up farms and pulling a Sherman special in Maryland you're going to you potentially there could be a big situation so the Engels thing is a huge huge thing that most people have never heard of was he really helped stabilize those those supplies and mm. really he really kept that under control and I think, you know, I think that's something that he doesn't really get enough credit for with McClellan. Yeah,
0: well, I think as much as as much as we kind of shit all over McClellan because he's kind of easy to, I mean, let's face it, he it's easy to do that to him. He made the Army of the Potomac. He did. He really did. He had
1: issues with authority. He certainly did. Mm. He had issues with Lincoln. He had issues with Halleck. He had issues with you and me.
0: Everybody. He hated everybody. <laughs> you know. I don't know what you. I don't know what I
1: did. I know he was trying to piss you. I don't think he. he hate,
0: I don't think I, his wife was like his number one confidant i think like i have a book of their letters and like the shit he writes to her i mean he was he didn't think anybody else was going to read it but he wrote to her after he was basically brought out of his time out and he said again i have been called upon to save the country under the circumstances no one else could save the country absolutely like, that's what he thought of himself like, don't was,
1: you need that though if you're in, in that role don't you need to be have i mean it was more fake confidence but don't you if you're but if you're a guy but if you're a guy going into battle Okay. Do you want to follow a guy who is kind of chicken shit a little bit, like a Ledley, or do you want to, or do you want to follow a guy who is going to be full of himself and bravado? I
0: think he, McClellan came across as confident to his troops, and he was—he's coming across as arrogant in his letters to his wife. So I think there's something a bit different going on there. So I do see what you're saying. Like, yeah, I would want to. Pro- I probably would if I was a soldier. Probably be like, yeah, I'm following McClellan. There was
1: a, you know, digressing. There was a story about Gettysburg I read. It was one of the diaries. We were talking about bravado and bravery and all that stuff. And, and a soldier writes home and he, he says, you know, oh, we were fighting in a cemetery, you know, artillery flying everywhere. And it was, and I guess the mother or the wife wrote back to him, oh, I hope you weren't hiding behind the gravestones. I hope you were being brave. And he responded back, we didn't hide behind the gravestones. That's where all the generals were hiding. It was was a great... I forget what book that's in. I I gotta find that, but it was was a good one. But but McClellan did organize. He did have them ready. Conversely, Lee's army was not without their issues too. You know, we mentioned the straggling. So he shows up in the Maryland campaign and right off the bat, he starts cutting. You know, they talk about not enough soldiers and all this stuff. He basically says, here's the deal. If you don't have shoes, you ain't coming. You're gonna stay back. If you're sick... You ain't coming. You're going to stay back. So when he left, he sent 5,000 shoeless, sick soldiers, left them in Winchester because he didn't want them coming on the campaign. So right off the bat, he's down to probably 60, 63,000 or so. And when you look at the early part of the campaign we'll talk about, he lost another, another few thousand at South Mountain and Harpers Ferry. So he's going to go into, into Antietam with 63,000 soldiers on paper. Now, okay, that sounds pretty good, but over twenty to twenty-five thousand people between when they left and when they got to Antietam got sick. So he's out of forty thousand battle-ready people when they, when they get to September seventh, starting at seventy thousand. I mean, how many did they lose at, at South Harper's Sorry, three thousand wasn't yeah, it that wasn't, many. The
0: casualties were not that high there.
1: So wait, let's just give him five thousand casualties. He leaves. He leaves with seventy thousand guys. He goes into Antietam with forty thousand people, with no big battles in between. You know, so right off the bat, you can see the strain, and a lot of the problem they had with stragglers they were losing people left and right you know he ended up moving he ended up taking his army over to hagerstown maryland which has got a really good bar i went to a few months ago called baron bulls yeah. I forget the name of yeah. it, but it's right in, the, right in the main drag there. It's pretty good. But he and Lee and Longstreet end up going there, and the rest of the Army kind of fans out a little bit. So this is a part of the show when we begin to talk about what happens in Harpers Ferry.
0: Do you want to talk a little bit about why Lee's invading Maryland
1: though? Go right ahead. Okay. Be my guest. All
0: right. <laughs> not to steal your thunder or anything. No,
1: I've been talking too much.
0: <laughs> well, okay, so Lee— I just want
1: to—I'm just, just waiting for you to start singing. <laughs> I'm
0: not— Singing on this
1: podcast, I haven't had enough booze yet. Oh, Save God. that for
0: a karaoke bar at some point in the road trip.
1: It'll be the Breakfast Club After Dark 5.5 edition.
0: Um, so, Lee is going to invade Maryland for a few different reasons. First of all, is to feed his army because he knows the farms in Maryland are going to be rich with crops at that time and they've been untouched by war, unlike Virginia. So, that's one reason. The other is the Northern Morale. Lee knows what's going on with the AOP bluster fuck after Manassas Army of Virginia mm-hmm. with John Pope and all that.
1: There's another um, there's another E next to our broadcast now after that swear. Yeah
0: it's always going to be explicit. Lee felt that he could win the war, not just through battles, but just by making people of the North unwilling to fight. And he's doing this because like, the congressional elections are happening and we thought he could just kind of fuck with their minds by invading them and make them you know, want to be like, we don't want to do this war thing anymore because they're too close to home now. And he tells Jefferson Davis on September the 3rd that the enemy was much weakened and demoralized. And also, a victory on Northern soil is going to figure prominently in the Confederacy getting recognized as a legit nation in or the fake news that it actually was
1: it certainly it certainly was i think lee knows what's going on i mean he's reading the northern papers he sees what's going he sees the infighting and the instability with the northern army exactly. he wants to fight mcclellan now he wants to fight them and keep basically he wants to take the field before before they're ready he knows how disorganized they are lee always wanted to keep that initiative he wanted to fight the battles take the initiative and to your point mary he wanted to keep the pressure on this election. Yep. I mean, there's that whole thing with the European intervention, and all that stuff, but, but he knew, Lee knew that wasn't going to happen. He just knew it wasn't going to happen. It again, goes back to the will versus the might, and he knew that anything he does on the northern soil is going to help with that 64 election. So, But he's got an opportunity now to fight McClellan when he knows he's not ready, he knows the army's a mess, and he's got him.
0: So now on to Harper's Ferry?
1: Harper's Ferry. So, I mean, basically, the union garrisons are Harper's, are Harper's Ferry and um, Martinsburg, so he, Lee goes into Maryland completely with the assumption that the Union Army is going to vacate Harpers Ferry. He does not want Harpers Ferry in his tailwind because he doesn't want a 12,000, 15,000-man army behind him as he goes forward. So he's like, well, let's go to Harpers Ferry, which is a very, very cool place, by the way, Harpers Ferry. Good restaurants there.
0: You know. yeah, I've never been before. Really? That's, I knew that. I knew that. Yeah. I was going to
1: get through a field trip. Planning on, on, on going
0: day. as soon as the borders open.
1: As soon as the borders open. It's a, hopefully it won't be too, too long. But he he basically wants, he he's amazed that they don't go. He can't believe that they're still there. Halleck wanted to keep Harpers Ferry manned. He felt that was an important garrison to have. Basically, Lee thought the federal soldiers were gonna leave and they were gonna vacate, go to Pennsylvania to defend Pennsylvania. That's what that's what he always did. So he was surprised that Harpers Ferry, Virginia, because it wasn't West Virginia back then, was still gonna be manned. And so that's gonna be a problem. So what is gonna do? He's gonna send he's gonna send three columns to go and surround Harpers Ferry to get them to, to basically quit. Yep. And he's gonna send a fourth column to Boonesboro because he's thinking not only after i kick these guys asses they're going to take off i'm going to pick them off right where they have to go out so he basically sends a garrison i mean a troop to intercept that those those guys leaving and on paper it looks like it's going to work uh, as far as the whole as far as the whole thing goes but as as the whole thing goes on easier said than done because you're talking about marching guys through those mountains mm-hmm. over those rivers and with really no supply lines you know he has stonewall jackson basically be the headliner to do it jackson was as soon as the South seceded right in april of 1861 that was jackson's first assignment was harper's ferry so he knew it so they wanted to send jackson into harper's ferry to basically be the guy so he's one of three columns who goes in there to take over the heights and so basically three columns you're gonna they're gonna basically try to surround the heights with bolivar heights maryland heights and loudon
0: heights and it's McClaws and Walkers that are accompanying yep. him on that. Yep. And D.H. Hill is playing the rear guard. He's going to stay back in the South Mountain mm-hmm. range. You're going to have
1: Jackson approaching from the West. You're going to have McClaws going to take Maryland Heights to the North. And you're going to have John A. Walker take Loudon Heights from the South. The plan is to trap them to basically surround them, force them to retire. They have a problem, though, because once they get up there, you can't march soldiers across those those two, the Shenandoah, and you can't march them across the Potomac. They're too busy. You can't mm-hmm. afford them. So in small arms, fire is not going to make it across those mountains. So they have to basically use artillery. And this is basically what happens. So Jackson sets up those batteries, and he pounds them and pounds them and pounds them. You're embarrassing the children. <laughs>
0: If this is Mitchell's <laughs> podcast, I'm watching.
1: <laughs> Anyways, there's a guy named Colonel Dixon Miles who basically vows the Union guy to defend Harpers Ferry. He's going to basically fight, defend to the last man. He tells his subordinates, "Anybody you see who tries to run away, retreat, you are to shoot him on sight." That's what the plan is. He thinks he can hold on to them because he doesn't think the infantry can get across the rivers. But those batteries what ultimately does him in September 14th uh, he continues to cannonade them from three different directions for five hours with 50 guns. finally the next morning at 9 15 September 15th which is today today's days yeah so 150 years ago today well as actually eight o'clock this morning was a date that Dixon Miles surrendered Harpers Ferry, the largest surrender in the Civil War. Yeah. Twelve thousand seven hundred guys surrender. The scapegoat in the entire thing that you hear about later is the hundred and twenty fifth New York, led by George Lamb Willard. And you know what they called his regiment after they they surrendered. He had a new troops, 125th New York. As soon as the artillery came, they all ran and hid. And they all got captured, including Willard. He got captured, too, along with, um, with Miles. He got captured. But from that point on, Willard's 125th New York, and Willard himself was called the Harper's Ferry Cowards.
0: Oh, that was
1: That was the nickname they got. Just to jump ahead real quick, it was a big reason why Willard did what he did at Gettysburg was because he wanted to help redeem himself when he fought against Cabinets Wilcox out with the first Minnesota areas. Yep. Uh, across the Pennsylvania Memorial. He gets killed at Gettysburg. That was the day they said that he retired the name Harper's Ferry Cowards. But that was the nickname they carried from from when they got paroled after when they got after Antietam when they got sent back. So that was a stigma that they had. So again, you see this infighting in the Union Army. Yeah. And cowards, I mean that's that's back then that was big fight work. That's like oh, flying Dutchman, right? Flying Dutchman, exactly. And then, you know, yeah. it's like the it's like going some calling someone back in the future yellow. Yellow. Yeah. You don't do it. You just don't do it. <laughs> Can you call me
0: yellow? Are you a yeller? <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. You know, you chicken.
0: <laughs> you know. And what is it in the uh, part two, the guy hits that thing on his vest and it's like <laughs> McFly. I have those movies all memorized. McFly would have been in the Irish Brigade, probably. Probably, yeah. You know?
1: So Harper's Ferry ends up being a big deal because Lee at that point, we're gonna digress a little bit and go, go back a little bit of times. At the time, at the time, the Union Army was was getting their shit together because what did they find on September 13th? Order 191. Order 191, which basically explained all of this. The key point of this entire campaign was Harper's Ferry. Without Harper's Ferry, Lee was like, "We got to go. We're done." It took three days for Jackson to finally take Harper's Ferry. In the meantime, they find the battle plans of McClellan, which leads to South Mountain. We'll get to it here in a few minutes. Basically, Lee knows the Army of the of the Potomac knows his plan now. He knows that it's not the campaign's over. He told his generals, this is done. This just shit's over. We got to get out of here. And it wasn't until Jackson took Harper's Ferry that he changed his plan. The plan was to go back and build a defensive situation, fight the Union, and try to escape back to the Potomac. Tells his soldiers, tells McClaws, just get your ass back. Whether you go through Shepherdstown, you got to get over the Potomac, and we got to get back to Virginia. But once Harper's Ferry fell, he decides to reform the army again, regroup the entire army, and bring them to Sharpsburg because so they have those heights, they have the creek, and build a defensive, a defensive battle there and wait for the Union to come attack him which is what Antietam is. But certainly after 191 gets found, it does lead to an offensive that's going to go the Battle of South Mountain. But again, the delay is what ultimately doing this.
0: Yeah, my column sits on it over 16 fucking hours. He sits on it.
1: And there's been a lot of questions about why he sat on it, what the delay was. Yeah, there's... Um, Because he was so,
0: he seems so confident because Gibbon goes to see him the day he's found it. Mm -hmm. He and, like, McCollum and Gibbon are friends, and Gibbon at the time is commanding the the Black Hat Brigade. That's their name at the time, is the Black Hat Brigade, their brigade of Westerners. They are the 2nd, 6th, 7th Wisconsin, the 19th Indiana. The 24th Michigan is not yet with them.
1: When you get a job done right, you you get Michigan. Yeah. Right, Ohio State? (laughs)
0: Apparently, apparently. When Gibbon goes to see him, McCollum is all oh i've found this i got this and he does say at one point with this order i can whip bobby lee so he is very confident about it yet he sits on it why
1: do you think he sat on it Please on mcclellan's position you just got a promotion you're in charge you're mcclellan now and you would get this what do you do
0: i think he he did what mcclellan would do in any situation i think he probably started thinking about it he found it had that excitement and was like hmm what do we do what do we do if i go after them and i fail if This is not an actual order, I think there was a little bit of just not wanting to risk it at that point. But then the more people he told, the more people were like, We need to move on this. What do you I think, think you I
1: think? I think you're right. I think there's a lot of it. I think, I don't know. See, I, part of me thinks he thought it was too good. Like, yeah. think about it you're sitting there, and some dude runs up to you with three cigars, which mm-hmm. I would have kept the cigars. I'm not gonna lie, I would have kept the cigars. Okay, oh, me too. And he takes, he says, I found this, I found. The game plan of Robert E. Lee specified out blah XYZ. If I got that, I'd be like, this is a setup. It has to be. There is no way anybody is that lucky to find the literal game plan of a campaign and you find out they're all spread out, where they are, where they're going, I'd be like, bullshit. This is this is this has is gotta be a setup. I think he waited, and I'm just this is just me. I'm not this is not anything. This is this is not any books, nothing. I think he thought he was being set up. Just I, me personally. I just think he thought it just can't be this easy. It just can't be. But yeah, unfortunately for him, it turned out that it was that easy. You know, he could have changed a lot of history if he had just simply believed in himself a little bit there.
0: Yeah. To your point, I think you are right about that. that wow. And, right again. Yeah. You're right again. Look at that. Look at you go. I sure. yeah.
1: love being right. It happens so frequently. <laughs>
0: <laughs> i think it ties into that and just his his excitement at finding it but then it's like oh shit what do i do now but then people find out about it because he's excited <laughs> he's telling like he's openly telling Gibbon about it <laughs> please don't die on the podcast aaron um
1: i told you if i die i want killed at gettysburg on am a gravestone it's all you.
0: Okay. Well, yeah, that could happen. Um,
1: <laughs> it probably is going to happen.
0: <laughs> anyway, he's found this order and he just doesn't act on it. I mean, McCall gets pretty heavily criticized about it. I mean, and I think some of it is right, but there must have been something going on in his head that he's not acting on it, you know? I, I mean, know. as you always say, though, like, we are 157 years, whatever, right. removed from this. Like, we don't know what they're thinking at the time. Like, we can look back on and think, like, oh, yeah, if we found it, we would have f- moved, but...
1: I think, though, he never explains why, so we'll never know. Like, exactly. we don't, like, we don't know, like, Sickles. Well, ne- he'll never accept blame for what he did at Gettysburg. and we, we talk about that. But he'll never sit there and say, I think I did anything wrong. And McClellan, I think, was the same way. But um, it had to have been something. Because he had all the right people in charge as yep. far as what he wanted to do. He had him. He had a little bit of morale. And he had Lee over a barrel. And he really, really let him off the hook to the point where he let him off the mat. But I was wondering what a Joe Hooker would have done in that situation.
0: I think he would have pursued.
1: I mean, we know what a Sherman would have done.
0: Oh yeah, you would have asked him.
1: I mean, Sherman wasn't Sherman in '62, but I mean, 1864, Sherman would have or Grant or someone like that. But it's really one that got away because, especially when you see the fact that Lee had capitulated this campaign, he basically mm-hmm. he was telling his guys, "We're done. We're out of here. This is this is you know, we got we got you know, checkmated on this one." Although it takes a little while for McClellan, it takes a whole day for him to do something. He does actually go on the offensive, and that's the Battle yep. of South Mountain. He does right.
0: Yep, South Mountain. A battle that doesn't get talked about much at all. It's I actually have a Mort Kunstler calendar. That battle is not listed on there in September fourteenth. But Jackson taking Harper's Ferry is and so is the Battle Mm -hmm. of Antietam. Same with Chickamauga starting on September nineteenth, which it started on September eighteenth. There we go again hey heard this, a,
1: heard this a thousand times when you, hey, you're right
0: you're right when you learn about what what minty and wilder do at chickamauga on september 18th that is the opening day of the battle but that is for an episode like two weeks from now so i'm not gonna get into oh, my picky bullshit now
1: <laughs> i bet you we hear all about that in two
0: weeks oh yeah <laughs> you're gonna hear all about them
1: well what about the south mountain what about this what about this aggressive mcclellan
0: so South there's so he goes on the offensive with this, he's pursuing Lee, he will go to South Mountain, and that's where there's gonna be obviously the battle of South Mountain. And there's three separate gaps that he's going to be attacking at. Foxes, Turner's, and Cramptons. So at Fox's gap, you have General Reno, Renault, probably butchering his name like I do, the state of Massachusetts. Oh, that was close. That was as close as you've ever been. Actually, I probably actually have to be there to say it properly.
1: Okay. You've... That was a good one, though, Fincher. Well done.
0: Thanks. (laughs) And Crampton's Gap, you have General Franklin fighting. But at Turner's Gap, you have Hooker's First Corps. Am I getting that right?
1: Hooker was the First Corps. Okay, good, good. I was
0: like, oh, my God, am I wrong? But their fighting is the Iron Brigade. Uh Or, well, actually, oh, just gave it away. The Black Hat Brigade is fighting there. And they're going
1: to the impo- be... I'm gonna the importance of South Mountain, obviously, is this is McClellan being aggressive, and he has to get through these passes to pursue Lee's retreating army, this divided yeah. army. So this is his opportunity. But yes, I'm sorry to interrupt. You were saying about the Black Hats?
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. You didn't interrupt
1: What was it about Chickamauga you said again? <laughs> oh, wow. I bet even the audio could see that middle finger you just gave me.
0: Yeah, the verb. <laughs> the Black Hat. I'm going
1: to bork my hat, my heart.
0: Yep. <laughs> Gibbon's Black Hat Brigade is going to attack at Turner's Gap, and they're going to be going against D.H. Hill. Which little piece of trivia about Gibbon and D.H. Hill? Gibbon is going to be attacking the man that he stood up as groomsman at his wedding.
1: A little tidbit. Yeah. You know, I wonder if they really talked about that, like afterwards.
0: I don't know. Probably not. D.H. Hill no. is a bastard. He was. <laughs> didn't he catch um didn't he catch mead early in the war
1: Meade was sleeping under a tree and no DHL that was
0: him. reynolds i think was that reynolds, reynolds that's what it was yeah. reynolds
1: i'm sorry it was, I reynolds. Reynolds. I it was i don't know why i blanked on i thought and, it was, and he
0: was like this is how war goes and reynolds <laughs> reynolds probably went like that to him give the him finger yeah <laughs> probably burbed him
1: but he him a james archer a middle finger <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: but, yeah. <laughs> It's good to see you, General. It's not okay. good to see you.
0: So the Black Hat Brigade had fought at 2nd Manassas, and they were at uh, the Bronner Farm, and they had suffered very heavy casualties there. So a few days prior to the Battle of South Mountain, Gibbon had met with McClellan, as I said before. Like, that's what McClellan told him about one, Order 191. But the reason McClellan was, or McClellan, Gibbon was going there was to ask McClellan that he would like another regiment to be part of this brigade, and he requested another Western regiment. This regiment will eventually be the 24th Michigan, but he's not going to have them for the Battle of South Mountain. Um, so at Turner's Gap, the fighting is obviously they're going up a gap in the mountains, so they're, they're climbing up terrain. And D.H. Hill's men, although D.H. Hill has way less men than what you know Gibbon is bringing up with him, they are entrenched behind like you know walls fences there's like they're basically in a very defensible position and but the the black hat brigade just keeps going and they keep going and going and going and Gibbon is on his horse and he's just like he he's up there and he's like just keep going forward 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 and they keep going up the hill and At one point, the men in the 7th Wisconsin are out of arms, including taking them from those who had fallen already. Gibbons' orders to them are eerily similar to an order that would be given at Gettysburg. Bayonets. That's the point that they got to. And
1: you know what's funny about about that attack was, what's the only thing that ultimately made them fall? Was that night came again. Yep. Yep, exactly. So. So, the, the, so, basically, fans held the high ground, but the Rebs still held the gaps because it got too dark. Yeah. So, so it's so funny how parallels a lot of these battles would be mm-hmm. when, you know, and, of course, the nickname that McClellan would go ahead and give these guys. Yes,
0: like, they Hooker and McClellan can see them fighting, and um, McClellan says, you know, wow, they fought, like, in... Well, Hooker says, those, those are my men. And, and McClellan said, wow, they fought like iron. And from them then on, they were known as the Iron Brigade.
1: Yeah, well-deserved.
0: Yeah. Well-deserved. So very, very cool story about them fighting there. But then there's fighting going on at other parts, too, at uh, Fox's Gap as well as Crampton's Gap. And at, where is it Reno gets killed?
1: He gets fired at Fox's Gap. So he, yep. Reno is going up against AP Hill okay mm-hmm. and you know and this is when um our old friends the kanahua division remember them from a few weeks ago
0: yeah which rutherford b hayes is part of he
1: and he gets more morally not morally wounded seriously injured in this battle yep. again how history could have changed a future president being yep. killed but um so brigadier general jacob cox he he drives and basically um he's holding the land south of the gap he pushes the north carolinas um basically uh, until they're as far as he can until his guys get completely, completely exhausted. Um, Basically, the Rebs deploy at a place called Wise Farm. Um, Reno tries to push again, but um, John Bell Hood, who we've talked about before, he ends up Mm -hmm. showing up. This is where Reno does get killed. Um, And that's pretty much the end of that one. What was interesting, one of the cool stories about this one is is this Wise Farm, is the owner of the Wise Farm the day after the battle, he finds a bunch of dead Rebs in his yard.
0: That's right. So you know,
1: you know what he does with them?
0: Is this the dollar to bury them or something like yeah.
1: this? A dollar to bury, yeah. them, and then he takes okay. sixty. He takes the remaining sixty and dumps them down a well, down a dry well on his property. He just says, "You know what? I don't need the money. He Takes sixty bodies and drops them down at the bottom of a dry well." And I assume they're probably still there. You, David? Yeah. Uh, so in case you're looking for well well water in the uh, mm. in that area, but, but that's have- a, that's. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was just saying, so it, it just goes to show another, another Union guy is killed in Reno, and and then who takes over the night from that would be Ambrose Burnside, would take over that that corps.
0: Yep. and then the, there's the corps. and then there's the fighting over at Crampton's um, Gap, which has some Confederate cavalry and a portion of General Lafayette McLaws' division is there as well.
1: They did really with the Confederates. You got to give props on this one, though. They were severely yeah. outmanned on this one.
0: Oh, they were.
1: I, you know, I think I think. I think McClaws had less than 500 men, 600 yep, men yep. go, going up against Franklin's entire sixth Corps. Yep. And um, Franklin spent
0: three hours just deploying his forces yeah. against him. Yep.
1: Yeah. You had Darius Cooch in charge of a division who ultimately would take over defense of the state of Maryland. But he basically, they trenched in and they just, and again, you, this is where you, you see Slocum, you see Baldy Smith, you see all mm-hmm. these guys trying to open that gap. But they this is this is a situation where it's almost like a Cubs Hill in reverse. We mentioned yep. David Ireland last night. We were talking a Another thing we were doing, basically, was it six to one odds? Something like mm-hmm. that? Like 3,000 guys against 500. But but regardless, a, you know, it, what South Mountain Battle will do again is it will give the opportunity for Lee to basically bring his army together again.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it hasn't really done, like, and I mean, they were outnumbered. The Confederates are outnumbered. Like, there's 28,000 um, Union troops going against 18,000. Like, obviously, McClellan is holding some of his, his troops back, which howard is not involved in this battle at all he's one of the ones that is held back
1: he probably would have made a difference probably
0: i think he would have he would have been like stood up there with his x-men power and like lightning bolts out of his one arm he would have just flipped that hair and they would have all been wrong oh exactly yeah stood up there like and they would have gone (laughs) hit him with the
1: power of the half moon
0: you know (laughs) but the casualties are not i hate saying low casualties because it's still like terrible that that people had to die here the unions are union it suffers 2325 total casualties and confederates is 2685 casualties at south mountain
1: a lot of those guys are captured a lot of you know i think there's about 4 or 5 are killed on each side i think a lot of the, a lot of the guys are captured but but i think but what is what does this campaign do though at the end of the day it it creates a missed opportunity for the Union, yep. without a doubt. This is probably one of the few times Robert Ulley, in defeat is mm-hmm. ready to actually retreat yep. and is let off the mat. This could have been a big situation. Obviously, this will lead into our subject for next week, which will be Antietam. But this is Lincoln sitting back, just ready to issue that Emancipation Proclamation. Exactly. He's ready to go with it, but he needs a win. And this could have been it. This could have been it right here. And he could have forced him back over the Potomac, and this probably would have been it. It would have saved it the bloodiest day in American history if you, if McClellan had probably attacked a little quicker and pushed them back at the time. If Harpers Ferry was defended a little bit more, I think it's tough though. I think it's tough to really blame Miles for Harpers Ferry because that wasn't. If you, anybody who's been to Harpers Ferry knows that is an indefensible That's position. Like
0: how many times and did it switch hands in the Civil War? was it like twenty-seven or something? A, like a that? whole
1: bunch. A whole bunch of times. Go back to go john brown's raid it's got history of that but it went back and forth and it's a strategic point right on the whole thing but but i think it's a it's a defendable position unless you've got artillery and once they got the guns up there mm-hmm. that was it it was just raining lead on them you know you had no position but to retire and they you know 50 guns for five hours i mean it wasn't quite picket's charge it wasn't 147 confederate guns going for two mm-hmm. hours but that's still a lot of lead, so you can't really blame them for really going out, but that was pulling the, the, the stopper out of the bathtub at that point. Well, Once that's Harper's, when Lincoln said no. the
0: bottom is out of the tub, referring to this time. What, is Lincoln stealing my quotes now? Yeah, he is, totally. Oh, my
1: gosh. But but this is the, really the beginning of Lee's, you know, opportunity. If they if have they'd held Harpers Ferry, and you know what, you, you got to give Halleck a little bit of credit for not re- pulling them out of there from the beginning, holding their ground, even though it was mm-hmm. pretty, they didn't really give any soldiers to to do it, yeah. And Har Harpers Ferry would ultimately be what would do- what would ultimately doom Joe Hooker a year later when he wanted those soldiers and they wouldn't re- pull them out of there. But for their experiences, what happened at in the Maryland campaign until Meade got in, and they just said, "Okay, you got to have them screw, screw." Yeah. So Harpers Ferry is one of those pivotal points. But when you're looking at when you're looking at the flash points and you're looking at what created the Antietam battle. And what created this whole thing? It was really Harper's Ferry because if Harper's Ferry doesn't fall, lease out, they're done.
0: Exactly. Yeah, that's that's what it's all hinging on too. And you know, for Lincoln sitting in Washington at this point, which is actually there's a really good book here. I go enabling called Fierce Glory. It's written by Justin Martin. It's about Antietam. But not only does it talk about Antietam, it does talk about the lead up to it. It talks about the political situation. It compares, the author does a really great job at comparing McClellan with Lee to show who's going up against who. Mm -hmm. Um, It's actually one of the best analyzes I've ever seen between the two of them. And he also talks about, he goes back and forth between Antietam and Washington. So you have an idea Mm -hmm. of what's going on with Lincoln. You have an idea of what's going on with the battle. But the thing that I loved about Fierce Glory, and the reason I'm talking about it now is just in case people listening to this on Saturday. If they want to go buy the book because believe me it's a quick read it's also an excellent audiobook i just got mine on audible and i listened to it it took me just a couple days to listen to it the other thing it is too it does not overwhelm you with a lot of details about the battle so you're not going to be hearing like this corps was here this division I know some people can sometimes get overwhelmed by that but it tells it from the perspective of the soldiers i learned so much about the soldiers who were fighting there and their stories it is one of the best civil war books out there i just i'd read it last year and then i listened to it again and i loved it even more just because you hear so much of those personal Mm -hmm. stories and he tells it in such a way that I was like, it's was playing out like a movie in my head as I listened to it. But it is a really good telling, you know, not just Antietam, but what was leading up to it and what Antietam, what hinged on the union winning Antietam, which mm-hmm. we're obviously going to talk about next week. That's
1: a pretty good book. I've got a book for you though. Same subject. I think this one's better than that. Yeah, I think it is. Okay. And this is a book by Scott Hartwig. who used to be in charge of, of, of Gettysburg, a book called Two Antietam Creek. Maryland Campaign of 1862.
0: That's the one Jen was okay. reading.
1: Yep. This is a hard book to find, but if you can find this one, it's a very, very fast, easy read to your point. Very detail-oriented. It's not quite according to the level of mm-hmm. brain freeze. But... It's going to give you a lot of good details. It's a great book as far as the lead-up. If you're looking for a Battle of Antietam book, the Sears book is the best one.
0: Yeah, Landscape I think.
1: I I, I I don't think anybody would would disagree with that. Oh, yeah. But I think Fierce Patriot, I think that. You mean Fierce Glory? God, there's too many books. You you and your books. (laughs) Fierce Glory, yes. That book or the Heartway book, you can't go wrong with that. Maybe we can trade books and we can read each other's books and see which one we think is better.
0: I think we could do that.
1: I think we can, we can figure something out with that. But yeah. either book, you can't go wrong. I like the Howie book because it was the first yeah. book on the campaign I read. And it's kind of my go-to book as far as trying to understand the campaign. But Fierce Glory is obviously a good book, too. And I have not read that one. But I've yeah. heard good but things.
0: But Fierce Glory is more about Antietam. Your book's more about the lead-up to it. So I think they would make good companion books for people to mm-hmm. to have. And I do know that for... You know, some people have, t- have come to me and said, tell me about a book about the Civil War that's not going to overwhelm me with a lot of details about army stuff, but just, you know, tell me in a way I can understand. Fierce Glory is that book. Mm-hmm. It's it's very well written. But Sears, too, hands down, is landscape turned red. Definitely the another go-to Antietam book as well.
1: That's probably the, yeah, that's the best book. That's Sears' best book, by the way. Yeah. I think it's better than the Gettysburg book. I, yeah. I, think, I think that's by far the best mm-hmm. book. It's an easy read as far as that goes. It's a very... Yeah, if you can read, you can. If you read that book and you go to Antietam, you'll see exactly what he's talking about, and it makes yeah. it makes so much sense. But if you are looking for a pre-book to, you want to read between between Chantilly and September seventeenth, the Battle of Antietam. Pick up the Harvey book. I think you can get it on Amazon, but I think it's expensive because it's kind of rare and it's kind of tough to find. But if you can find it, you could You should definitely get it because Scott's book is fantastic.
0: Yeah, I need to. And get I and I. I've been and enabled I now. Yeah.
1: Well, you can just you can just remind. You can just okay. read mine. <laughs> god's sakes give me that look (laughs) (laughs) so i think that's a good place to leave us off right there what do you
0: think i think so yeah so i think we can
1: tease so when so next time we get together we will talk about what happens next so we will leave the field we will leave lee and his army nestled on the on the hills of sharpsburg Mm -hmm. we will leave the Army of the Potomac in McClellan, uh, east of the city, trying to figure out what to do next, You know what the best course of action is. And then we will explain in detail the Battle of I Antietam, mean, the ramifications politically and militarily that come out of that. And you know what? We might even have some cool stories about some of the generals who fought in this battle. Because yeah. this is all about humanizing and all about person- personifying these people we got some cool ap hill stories to talk about with the battle of Antietam.
0: yeah i've actually got a cool given one to talk about all
1: right well i think that's a good place to drop off
0: so um
1: any final thoughts from you fincher
0: oh i think that was an excellent episode with you as always i think
1: it was hopefully it wasn't too 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 detail oriented but this is all leading up to bigger and better things and now understanding the players and what the armies were, the status of the armies, the psyche of the armies. Mm-hmm. Now, because now you have what was a down army of Northern Virginia being emboldened again because now they're going to yes. fight again. Yeah. Versus you have the army of the Potomac, who was still kind of high though because they had some success in South Mountain. Exactly. They, feel they feel that they have the upper hand. So you've got two good armies, good two teams on the field ready to go. It really the, one of the few times in the Civil War history when both armies feel like they have the better army.
0: Yeah, and, and what's hing- get- Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was gonna
1: say, and they're gonna meet. They're gonna meet in Sharpsburg, Maryland, the right to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah, th-
0: that's what I was just gonna say. Like that's what Lincoln. That's what is hinging with Lincoln is he's been writing this Emancipation Proclamation for a few months now, and he's waiting for his opportune moment to.
1: Oh, he's he's got it in his a- inbox. He's ready to hit that. Yeah, he's
0: ready to. It, it's no there. One- he just needs the opportune time.
1: You know, you know, when you have something, you're going to send it, and you're not sure you want to, and you wait, and wait, and wait. Yep. And finally, you say, just screw it and send it. That's yep. what this was. Yeah, that, that's, that's that's what, that's what, that's that's what Lincoln's
0: doing. The other thing, too, that we've done with this, with discussing 2nd Manassas, is we are showing the stepping stones that lead to Antietam, that it's not just 2nd Manassas and Antietam. Mm-hmm. There's all this stuff that happens in between. There's yep. all this, it's like, there's drama going on, there's armies changing, and there's different battles. That are happening as well that are stepping stones to what becomes Antietam the bloodiest day in American history.
1: And the 17th is coming up, I believe it's Saturday. Is no,
0: it? it's Thursday.
1: What what the, oh, it's the 15th, that's right, it's Thursday.
0: Yeah, yep. and, it the oh. and then in a few weeks, we are going to be spending a couple episodes on Chickamauga.
1: Do you know the battle actually happened the day before everybody thinks in Chickamauga? Yep, you know,
0: I, I heard that I somewhere.
1: So where I heard that. A little Fincher told me. Start on the eighteenth.
0: Does this have to do with Minty by any chance? Is it? <laughs> I feel like I'm being like some dickhead historian now. It's like start on the eighteenth, not the nineteenth. You just need to have a quality,
1: actually. Yeah, no. <laughs> you need to you need to put that into your lexicon.
0: Now I feel bad.
1: <laughs> oh no. That's no one's no one's feeling bad. No one's feeling bad. Except maybe McClellan, maybe, but that's okay. Yeah. All right. So we're going to leave it there. We're going to have a great time. Always a pleasure to talk to you yep. Mary and um I Me thought too. it was a good talk today. Yep. And we will get back to we'll get back to the second half of this next week. Don't forget Facebook Live at 10 a.m. on Saturday. We're going back to our regular Saturday schedule. Yep. So tune in, check it in. We are Mary made it, Mary did a good thing this week. She got this podcast on iTunes. Yep. So now we are no longer on just the Podbean. Now we're on Spotify yep. and iTunes, which is a pretty big deal. And if you want to see our smiling faces, you can see us on YouTube. Oh, my God. We're on TV. We can be on YouTube. Um, so you can see some of the past couple episodes we did. And the Facebook Lives are on YouTube, too. We call yep, those Yeah, I'm putting up them up on the YouTube five, as so. well.
0: And I'm also posting them on Podbean as well. So they'll go to all our platforms. So, But they are on, on edited. So, like, I'm not going to sit down and edit those. No. <laughs> it well, you do me, like, mean... seven, eight hours to edit. These, right. these ones here so you um, do a
1: great job with the editing i gotta, I gotta give you props mary well
0: thank you, you yeah, yeah, good. yeah thank you <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway so we will look forward to talking to you soon so we will turn into antietam so hopefully now uh, you enjoyed this hopefully it was a good lead up antietam eve as they say
0: mm-hmm.
1: as this goes into september 17th which we will talk about in detail which is the bloodiest day in american history and it's something that we will talk about with complete reverence and understanding what implications it had going forward. So yep. that's it for me.
0: Yep, and that's it for me. So everybody have a oh, when This episode drops a wonderful Saturday, and hopefully you will tune into our Facebook Live at 10 o'clock. We will talk about this episode, but if the conversation digresses and we talk about other stuff, that's perfect too.
1: The point of the Facebook Live isn't just to talk about this shit again. It's to interact with people. Yeah. And the other day we had a really good one with mm. when we were talking about the football and it was it was just really cool to kind of talk with people and just hang out with some of our civil rights nerd friends and just kind of shoot the shit and drink morning beers so hopefully yeah, um
0: we do drink well, morning yeah, beers because so, we get up ridiculously early on saturdays so, yeah, so six o'clock <laughs> in the morning like oh, some, God like,
1: like 80 year old people <laughs> yeah. getting up that early
0: <laughs> i admit um, to being up at six o'clock on a saturday me too, me too i set my I'm alarm get for, for my coffee
1: i'm up, I'm up at six yep, me too, every I up for
0: my coffee too
1: but definitely check out check out the Facebook live. We'd love to talk to you. Love to love to hear from you. It's just a lot of fun. We will definitely look forward to seeing you.
0: Yep. And as always, find us. You can find us on Twitter, find us on Instagram, and you can also find us on Facebook too. Just feel free, if you have any episode ideas, let us know. And you can reach out to us at civil at gmail as well, which we have had a few listeners email us there too. So
1: and we're awesome. on Twitter, we're obnoxious on Twitter. So come find us on Twitter.
0: Yep. Anyway, so until next week. We'll leave you, we'll pick it up with Antietam. So, everybody, have a wonderful Saturday, and we will see you again soon. Peace out. Bye.